0: Hello and welcome to the ArenaCraft podcast, a show dedicated to Magic the Gathering Arena, Pioneer and newer formats. My name is Arjuna, I am your host. And today I'm bringing you some more draft content, and I know I did some last week, and don't worry, I'm going to get back to Standard, I'm going to get back to Pioneer in the future, but, you know, we haven't had any major Standard tournaments, and meanwhile we've seen Theros Beyond Death draft all over the latest Players Tour events in Nagoya, in Brussels, in Phoenix... We've been watching the pros draft this format, and I've also just been obsessed with it, playing on Arena. And so my my mind is really in it, and I have a lot of thoughts about the format. So I'm going to be sharing those again. You know, it's not going to be forever. I'm going to come back to standard. I'm going to be covering other formats, but I just uh, I really want to take a deep dive on Thero's Beyond Death draft because I think it's a really amazing format. And we've just seen a lot of really high-level play lately. So I would highly recommend if you haven't watched any of the Players Tour events to go ahead and bring up some video of that. Really excellent high-level drafts. It's just really a pleasure to watch people at the top of the game playing this format. So I've been having a reasonable amount of success in this format. I have played 130 matches now and with a win rate of 68%. And I've had 11 five win runs and best of three so far on Arena. Uh, Not to brag or to say that I'm an expert on this format, but I've definitely been getting into it and seeing a fair amount of success. And so, you know, I just wanted to share some more thoughts that I've been having about this format and what you really need to be thinking about to be successful at it. So... Let's just get right into it. Now, what I want to discuss today is the concept of card clusters in draft. And so what what do I mean by that? This is a it's a really key concept in magic in general, which is that magic is really all about synergy. It's all about picking cards that work well together and picking cards that can reproduce effects, which... Typically are successful in the game. And so this is nothing new, but I think it's especially important in draft because you know you're building your deck on the fly, so you don't get the luxury of looking over your collection and and throwing together a deck and gold fishing and really trying it out. You have to kind of have this running analysis of the cards that you're seeing and how you can fit them together to get a deck which is not just a pile of cards but which is a deck which has a plan right a deck where which has a story and so you know a lot of the biggest drafters talk about this a lot of the most successful drafters talk about how your deck needs a plan or your deck needs a narrative if somebody were to ask you what does your deck do you should ideally be able to tell them you know My deck is built around exploiting this particular aspect of the game. I do that using this set of cards. The rest of these cards in my deck are either to keep me alive or to put on the pressure or removal, stuff like that. But each deck ideally has kind of one or more core ideas that it's built around, and you're trying to exploit a certain aspect of the game to get an advantage over your opponent. And so one of the key ways that you do this is by identifying these groups of cards, and I I call them clusters of cards, which have particular synergy or just really flow well together in a game. Maybe it's a curve that you can do, which is really potent, or maybe it's two cards that occupy the same mana slot in your deck that you can cast interchangeably depending on what you need. So I'm going to go into that and just examine some of what I think of as like the main clusters in this format. So I want to start with one of the simplest examples, which is in green. So green, you know, like in most sets, is built around big stompy creatures, and Theros Beyond Death has really delivered on that. And so one of the most potent openings that you can have in this format is Nessian Horn Beetle? That's the two-two, which gets a plus one, plus one counter added to it at the beginning of combat on your turn if you control a creature with power four or greater. So, going turn two Nessian Horn Beetle into turn three Loathsome Chimera, that's the four-one escape creature, is just a really powerful curve. That's one of the strongest two-drop, three-drop curves that you can do in this format. And what it means is that on turn three, you can be attacking with a 3-3, and on turn four, you can be attacking with two four-power creatures. And a deck usually needs to have some pretty immediate answers to not just get run over by that. And of course, if you're able to follow that up with maybe a Voracious Typhon on turn four, and a Nylea's Forerunner on turn five, then not only do you have these big creatures that are continuing to buff your Nessie and Beetle. But you also have like a top end finisher which gives all your creatures trample and allows for you to push through damage. So this is just a very, very simple example of a cluster of cards which you should be looking out for when you're drafting. I had a draft the other day. It was pack one and I wasn't really sure where it was going. I hadn't picked up any you know bombs i hadn't picked up any strong removal i hadn't gotten any myers grasp or anything like that but i did manage to get maybe a pick three or a pick four nessie and horn beetle and then i managed to grab another one in pack one and immediately what this made me think was that green is reasonably open because nessie and horn beetles a, it's a pretty premium card and it also made me think, okay, what are some other four-power creatures that I can pick up that would go well with this? And so as soon as I picked up two Nessian horn beetles, I started prioritizing loathsome chimera, because that's probably just the strongest combo that you can get with it. And so I managed to pick up one of them. I managed to pick up a voracious Typhon. I got two Nylea's forerunners because I was looking out for them. You know, this is this is what you do: is is you you adjust your orientation in the draft and you start looking out for the cards which make the existing cards that you have stronger. I also managed to pick up a third Nessian Horn Beetle in that draft, and so once you have that online, it's a really potent combo. And so I was consistently in the games that I played with that deck. I was consistently able to go turn two Horn Beetle turn three chimera or if i missed the turn three then it was turn four some four power green creature and so that was just really potent and i I steamrolled my matches and you know that was one of my 5x decks so that's a starting point and a very very simple example of this principle let's explore another example of a really potent curve that you can do in this set Now, I'm a really big fan of white, as I've said before. And one of my favorite things to do in this format is the white devotion strategies. I think that they're very strong, and I think that some of the payoffs that you get are really excellent. And a lot of the enablers are really good, too. So, you know, you're not even necessarily giving up much to go for it. So one of the simplest things that you can do in white is you can just play Daxos on turn two, and daybreak chimera on turn three, and that's just a really backbreaking opening to a game. It's another kind of an opening where if an opponent doesn't immediately have an answer for your flyer, then you can just get such a strong start in that game. Uh, another thing that you can do to enable the daybreak chimera is you could do something like Alcied of life's bounty. You could play that on turn one. Into any two drop white creature on turn two. Maybe you have a transcendent envoy or a hero of the pride, for example. And then you can drop your chimera on turn three. And so, what this means is that if I manage to pick up, let's say, you know, I second pick a daybreak chimera, then, and, and it looks like I'm going to go into white. Maybe I follow it up with a dreadful apathy or another strong white card then immediately I'm going to start to look out for, okay, can I pick up a Daxos? Can I pick up an Alcid of Life's Bounty? And, you know, that card especially is a great combination with the Chimera because you can then protect your Chimera with it later as well. And if you have the dream curve of if you go Alcid into Daxos, into Chimera on turn three, then you can actually have one mana up to protect it right on that turn. So... You know, that's kind of magical Christmas land, but it is actually a thing that you can do in this set. And if you do, it's just so strong, you know, it's just, it's hard to imagine an opponent being able to deal with that kind of an opening. So this kind of thing is, is, is really big to look out for. And then what you can do on top of this, a way to really seal the deal or a way to push something like this over the top is if you have a reverent Hoplite at the top of your curve, then... You know, you get massively paid off for all of this work that you've done to build this white devotion in your deck. And again, especially like if you curve a hero of the pride into Chimera into Reverent Hoplite. And then if you have basically any kind of combat trick, or maybe you have a commanding presence or something like that, then uh, you can just really close out the game very, very quickly. So once I've picked up some of these, maybe I start by picking up the payoffs, maybe I pick up a Daybreak Chimera, I pick up a Reverent Hoplite, or maybe I even just see like a turn three or four Daxos in an otherwise weak pack, and you know I'm, I'm higher on that card than some people are, and so I'll just grab it, and, and all of a sudden I'm thinking about this, it's another cluster that you can start to keep an eye on, like am I seeing cards in this cluster in my draft? And just a few additional cards that can really help out are things like Sentinel's Eyes, which is a very, very great way to just get your white devotion up a little bit more, very easily. And it's also quite synergistic with the Transcendent Envoy, with the Daybreak Chimera, just buffing your flyers a little bit to make them more effective, more resilient. So anyway, that's another example of a whole cluster of cards that I'm looking out for. And when you start picking up some of the pieces, the value of the rest of these cards goes up tremendously. And you might even do a thing like, for example, in the previous cluster I was talking about with Nessie and Hornbeetle, I remember I had a choice in that draft between picking up a Warbriar Blessing versus my second Loathsome Chimera. And I prioritized the Chimera even though in a vacuum I might actually take the Warbriar Blessing first because removal is very, very important, especially in a deck where you already have a lot of stompy creatures. You know, I'll generally prioritize removal because you know I probably already have a lot of green creatures. But in that particular case, I opted to take a Loathsome Chimera instead of the Warbriar Blessing because it was just such a because I had three Nessian Horn Beetles, and then having two Chimeras just gave me such a better chance of doing that dream curve of two into three so and and i think that that was the right choice and i think it was born out i i just was able to assemble that very consistently with that deck and it was one of the reasons that deck was so successful so this is definitely an example of the picks that you've already made affecting the priority of the next picks that you make and it might make sense to you know in a white devotion strategy it might make sense to pick up your seven your second copy of reverent hoplite as opposed to picking up you know your second copy of dreadful apathy right because even though dreadful apathy might be a more powerful card in a vacuum just you know a more powerful top deck in any random white deck the fact is that if you're already in a white devotion strategy and you have two reverent hoplites it just it's so much more devastating so that's really something to think about when you're building one of these decks Let's go into a third example of this. And this one's, it's quite easy to see how the cards in this cluster work together and how they synergize with each other. And so this is what I would call the blue three mana instant cluster. And you'll see this in a lot of decks. And it's some of the key commons in blue are at the three CMC slot. And they're very, very key cards on the third turn or in the early turns of the game, I mean really at any point in the game, but especially on turn three, these are the cards, like if your blue opponent passes with three mana up, you have to be expecting one of these cards out of them. And so this cluster is built around uh, the two spells, Deny the Divine and Whirlwind Denial, both cost two and a blue and the the wonderful thing is that they've also printed thirst for meaning which is an excellent card draw spell at two and a blue and they've also printed vexing gull at two and a blue and so if you have any of these cards in your hand and and preferably if you have multiple of these cards in your hand it just makes the cluster so much stronger because let's say on it, it, what it lets you do is it lets you on turn three, you can just pass your opponent with three mana up, and then you can wait to see what they do. And if they play a creature that you want to counter, then you can cast your deny the divine. If they don't play anything, and you have a thirst for meaning in that, in that example, then you can just cast that instead. And you've effectively used your mana while your opponent has not. And so it's a really strong way to get an advantage, or you can flash in your vexing gull. Or, you know, another example is maybe you have an Omen of the Sea or maybe you have a Riptide Turtle. And so these are just ways that you can you can take advantage of the fact that you have left up mana and you put your opponent in an awkward position where they have to guess what you have. And you're likely to come out favored in that situation the more of those three mana cards that you have in your deck. So let's say, for example, that In pack one, maybe pick three, pick four, something like that. You pick up a Thirst for Meaning. It's a very strong blue card and one of the cards that might pull me into blue. And then let's say you pick up another Thirst for Meaning. Or let's say that you pick up a Vexing Gull because you're high on that card, right? Then all of a sudden, every Deny the Divine that you see goes up in value. Every Whirlwind Denial goes up in value. Even Riptide Turtle goes up in value. You'll always want to play Omen of the Sea in these decks, But it also raises the value of cards like Niad of Hidden Coves, which makes your instance cheaper. So you start to build these profiles. And so if by the end of building your deck, it's very plausible for you to end up with a blue deck which has two Thirst for Meaning, two Vexing Gull, maybe two Deny the Divine, one Whirlwind Denial, a Riptide Turtle, an Omen of the Sea. And that's just a whole bunch of cards that you could play in that slot and it keeps your opponent guessing, and it just gives you more options so that you can make a valuable play on that turn. So that's a really, really strong cluster, and it's really the core of a lot of these blue decks. And if you're going into blue, you should strongly consider trying to get some critical mass of these three-mana instant blue spells. Now, of course, if you manage to pick up A rare, you know, a busted rare that goes along with this, like wave break hippocamp, then of course all of this stuff goes way up in value. So if I pack one, pick one, a wave break hippocamp, then the value of thirst for meaning would go way up for me. The value of vexing gall would go way up. All of these cards gets so much better when you have a Hippocamp, because now you're just cantripping off of them. And so, you know, 2-2 two, two Flash Flyer for 2, which draws you a card, is, is a busted card. You know, 3-mana Exile your creature or enchantment draw a card is a busted card, right? Even 2-mana Flash 05 Blocker that draws you a card is an amazing card. So I don't need to tell you how strong that is. So yeah, if you manage to pick up you know, any kind of rare reinforcement for this stuff. It just shoots the value of the cluster way up. Okay, so now let's go into some different colors and talk about some other clusters that you might be looking out for in this format. Now, one of the favorite ones, which a lot of people love building around, is Hateful Eidolon, right? So this is the 1-2 lifelink creature for 1 black mana, and it reads, whenever a creature dies... If it had an enchantment you control attached to it, you draw a card. So, Hateful Eidolon is a strong build-around engine in this format, and because of the way the format's designed, you don't particularly need to do a lot of work or go out of your way to abuse this card. But, again, once you pick up one of these, and especially if you manage to get two of them, there's a whole constellation of cards that go up in value. So, Mogi's Favor, which is already a playable card shoots up in value when you have a hateful idol on and remember you can do things like you can put a mogi's favor on your own creature to make it more likely to die so that you can get your card out of it and it puts your opponent in a tough spot because all of a sudden you have a, a pretty powerful quite threatening creature which is easy to kill and it really incentivizes your opponent to block it But then you draw a card out of the deal and you can get your favor back. So that's an example of a card which just goes so well with a Hateful Eidolon. But of course, you know, other fantastic cards to play with it are cards like Maya's Grasp. And it also really raises the value of any auras that you play that make your own creatures better. So the value of Sentinel's Eyes goes up. You know, all of the auras which you can get back from the graveyard, which have escape are just a really fantastic combination with Hateful Eidolon because it really makes your opponent's life difficult. So, but even, you know, the value of Transcendent Envoy goes up because it makes your auras cheaper and it's a great thing to put auras on. If you manage to pick up a commanding presence or an aspect of Lamprey, for example, um, or let's say you're doing some three color madness and you have a staggering insight, these are all examples of things that will just really bump up the power of your. Hateful Eidolon. And I've I've never done this before, but I was thinking about this the other day. And there's actually an almost infinite loop that you can do with the hateful eidolon. And so what you need for this loop is any kind of sack outlet, preferably a cheap sack outfit outlet, like maybe the lampad of Death's Vigil. And you need an, a hateful Eidolon, and then you need preferably a sentinel's eyes because it only costs one even when you escape it but a mogi's favor will do as well and then the only other thing you need is just cards in your graveyard to escape and then of course the thing that really brings this combo together is dawn evangel so dawn evangel is the 2-3 which reads whenever a creature dies if it had an enchantment you control attached to it you return a creature of converted mana cost two or less from your graveyard to your hand and so what you can do is so okay, it's a four card combo, which you know, but these are all cards that you see fairly regularly in this format. And so what you can do is you have your Dawn of Angel out, you have your Lampad out, you have your hateful Idolon, you cast Sentinel's eyes on your Idolon, then you sack the Idol onto the Lampad, you drain your opponent for one, you draw a card. Both your Lampad and your Sentinel's eyes go to the graveyard your dawn evangel triggers because you had a creature with an enchantment you controlled that went to your graveyard and now you get to return your idol on to your hand so now you can cast your idol on again you can cast your sentinel's eyes again and as long as you have a couple of cards to exile from your graveyard you can get your sentinel's eyes down again and you can just repeat this and each time you're drawing a card and draining your opponent and it only costs three mana to do this if you if if you have these exact cards so it's basically for as many cards in your graveyard as you have you can pay three mana draw a card and drain your opponent for one and then of course if you really want to live the dream and you have a woe strider which of course is a rare so you're not likely to have that but if you do then all of a sudden you can do this for two mana and every time you sack your eidolon instead of draining for one you get to scry which is actually a really amazing combination with the Eidolon's card draw ability. So now this becomes two mana, scry one, draw one every single time that you want to do this. And so, you know, you don't need me to tell you that that's pretty busted. So if if you're in the mid game and maybe you have six cards in your graveyard, you can do this three times. So... This is a combo I would definitely look out for. And again, you know, it's not necessarily likely to happen, but at the same time, you know, uh, Lampad's common, Dawn Evangel is uncommon, Hateful Eidolon is uncommon, Sentinel's Eyes is common. So these are all just, you know, cards that you're going to see a lot of. If you can assemble this, it's a pretty busted thing to be able to do in a game of draft. So yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to trying this one out. I've, I've never actually assembled that combo but it occurred to me and i definitely want to give it a go before we move on from this you know i just want to talk about the clusters built around heliod's pilgrim because this card is it's a really powerful card a lot of people say that it's the best white common in the set and i would tend to agree i put it right up there with daybreak chimera and depending on which deck you're in you know probably determines which one you value more highly But once I've managed to pick up one or more Heliod's Pilgrims, it really bumps up the value of other cards in my deck a lot. So for example, I'm a lot more likely to pick up Transcendent Envoy if I have Heliod's Pilgrim, because Heliod's Pilgrim is just basically a redundant copy of any enchantment in your deck that you haven't drawn yet. And so it's really easy in this format to do something like drop a Transcendent Envoy on turn two, and then drop your Heliod's Pilgrim on turn three. And then you can go and grab your commanding presence. You can get Aspects of Lamprey, you can get Orous' Blessing. You know, you can even get Dreadful Apathy. And the great thing about Transcendent Envoy, of course, is that it makes your auras cheaper. And so it can actually allow you to, you know, drop your commanding presence on turn three and maybe have a mana up, you know, if you were lucky enough to be able to play an Alcid of Life's Bounty on turn one. Or it can do something like on turn four, it can allow you to play your Dreadful Apathy and also have two mana up to maybe play a Lampad or some other two drop as well or a Maya's Grasp, you know, which will only cost you one mana in that case. So, yeah, so Heliod's Pilgrim and Transcendent Envoy, they just go so well together. And if I pick up copies of one, I'm just a lot more likely to want copies of the other. And then of course, you know, the more excellent enchantments you have in your deck the higher the power of Heliod's Pilgrim goes up. But, you know, I would run Heliod's Pilgrim even if I only had, maybe I just have one Dreadful Apathy and one Sentinel's Eyes in my deck, and that's it. That right there would be enough for me to run it, because the card advantage that you get from it is just so strong. And even though, you know, you're basically paying three mana for a one-two, which isn't that great. But, you know, three mana for a one-two, which a lot of the time summons up the best removal spell in your deck, or in the worst case scenario, is going to summon up like a buff, which is repeatable, which you can keep putting on your creatures. It's just totally worth it. So in nearly every white deck, I run Heliod's Pilgrim. I'll pick them up in multiples. And like I said, even if I only have a couple of enchantments, you know, even like if you're not a fan of aspects of lamprey right it's a very kind of a medium spell in this format i don't see a lot of people main decking it but you know if you have any kind of synergy right if you have your transcendent envoy if you have heliod's pilgrim if you have a lampad the uh, sorry if you have hateful eidolon these are all things that make your aspects of lamprey go up in value So if I have Heliod's Pilgrim and if I have Transcendent Envoy in my deck, I'm just a lot more likely to run one or even multiple copies of any of these enchantments just because it's so strong to be able to fetch them up. And even if you have them in your opening hand, just curving an Envoy into a Lamprey can be really brutal, you know, or curving Envoy into Commanding Presence is really, really strong. So that's a whole little cluster right there. And then, of course, if you have a whole bunch, let's say you have three Transcendent Envoys in your deck, you have two copies of Commanding Presence, Maybe you have a copy of Sentinel's Eyes, something like that. Now, all of a sudden, Dawn of Angel is starting to look like a good card in your deck, even though I'm generally kind of down on that card. But in a situation like this, where you have, you know, at least three two drops in your deck, and in which a really key part of your strategy is throwing down a strong enchantment on one of those two drops then they'll need to be dealt with. And once they do get dealt with, your Dawn of Angel will help you buy your Transcendent Envoy back. And that's just very, very strong. So that's just another example of when you start to build cards in a cluster, there are these other kind of niche cards which you would normally leave out of your deck. Like I I definitely don't start Dawn of Angel in my average white deck at all. I've been pretty aggressively cutting that card. But You know, when you have this critical mass of these other cards, then it starts to make sense to run it, and it can be a very strong card in your deck. So let's talk about some more examples of this. Now, another card which really encourages clusters like this is Shimmerwing Chimera. Now, this is one of the stronger uncommons in the set. I never pass this card if I'm in blue. I just think it's super busted and... A lot of the games that I have lost the most definitively in this format have been to Shimmerwing Chimera. You just can't underestimate its ability to pick up enchantments again and reuse them. So as soon as I have a Shimmerwing Chimera, the value of just about any utility enchantment shoots up in my deck. So an Omen of the Sea just becomes a repeatable scry 2 draw one that you can do every turn when you have a Shimmerwing Chimera in play. It's just such excellent value. Another card which is just straight busted with the Chimera is Warbriar Blessing, because you basically get a removal spell every turn, as long as your opponent doesn't deal with the creature you put it on. Another thing you can do is Aroas' Blessing. That's a really, really strong combo if you're in blue-red. And even something as simple as Starlet Mantle can be really really strong and especially you know people will be trying to kill your chimera because they know it's one of the best cards in your deck being able to flash out a Starlit mantle protect your chimera and then blink it back at the beginning of your next turn is just amazing and now it's like basically for the rest of the game you just have hex proof on command and unless your opponent has two instant speed ways of killing a creature they're probably just never going to be able to remove any of your creatures for the rest of the game so that is it's just so strong once you pick up a chimera the value of cards like starlit mantle the value of omens goes way up and even some more niche cases like you know just being able to pick up your dreadful apathy and put it on something else if you want to or picking up your banishing light and upgrading it these are just all examples of things you can do now, of course, the value of constellation triggered cards goes up as well. So, for example, Shoal Kraken starts to become a really amazing creature. Like, if you have Shimmerwing Chimera, Starlet Mantle, uh, sorry, if you have Shimmerwing Chimera, Omen of the Sea, and Shoal Kraken out, then every turn you get a free loot. Free, sc- well, it's not free. You have to pay the mana for it, of course, but you basically get a repeatable loot. Scry two, draw a card every single turn, and that's just incredibly busted. So um, the value of other cards, like even Stinging Lionfish, can really go up. Let's say you have a Chimera, you have a an Omen, and a Lionfish in play. You can basically just tap a creature down every turn by playing your Omen at the beginning of combat on your opponent's turn. So you know, I mean, it's not the best combo. It's it's a little bit janky. But it's just another example of how you can use these cards in your deck to start locking an opponent out. I played against a blue-white deck, and an opponent had the White Omen, and they would just flash it in every turn and make two 1-1s, and then at the beginning of their upkeep, they'd return it to their hand. And they just made an army of 1-1s and overran me. And, and of course, you know, if they'd had something in play like a Shoal and they'd be getting extra value out of that every turn. So so yeah, once you pick up Shimmerwing Chimera, there's just so many things that you can do with it. Another card which is strong in its own right, but which becomes incredibly busted with a card like Shimmerwing Chimera, is Eutropia the Twice Favored. And so what this allows you to do is you can reliably trigger Constellation on your turn every turn, put a plus one plus one counter on one of your creatures, and send it to the skies. And then of course, should you get lucky enough to also have a Cetestin Champion in your deck you know, for the rare win, then it just gets completely out of hand. So yeah, and Chimera, it's a card that I pick very highly, and it just immensely raises the value of this whole cluster of cards that I have talked about here. Okay, let's talk about a few more examples here. So the, with the Sacrifice synergies, you can start to have a lot of fun. You know, a lot of these combos come down to Lampad of Death's Vigil. This is just a really fantastic card in this format. I think I wouldn't say that it's underrated, I think people know how powerful it is, but it's just so key to a lot of the coolest things that you can do in this format. So uh, another thing that I like to do is combine it with Blight Breath, Catablipus, and Omen of the Dead, and that's already a two-card combo that I really like, Omen of the Dead and the Catablipus. The Omen of the Dead buffs your devotion for the Catablipus, and this is what allows you to buy it back. So you can do something like you can play your kill a thing and then trade your Catableepus in combat and then you can omen it back, kill another thing by resolving it the next turn. But you could also just use your Lampad of Death's Vigil and do it that way as well. So, you know, sometimes you just need a little extra push to get your creature back in the graveyard. Same thing with the Grey Merchant of Asphodel, which is, of course, another one of my favorite cards in the format to abuse. And again, it's like if you have a Lampad an omen of the dead and a gray merchant in your deck, then you can just repeat Gary's effect and maybe that'll push you over the edge. And then, of course, let's talk about a rare bump here. Now, if you're lucky enough to pick up Nightmare Shepherd, then any kind of shenanigans with Lamp Out of Death's Vigil just get completely out of control or any other sack outlet, like a Soul Reaper of Mogies, for example. So, this is another thing that you can. Do which make your, you know, it's like Lampad on its own, not necessarily an amazing magic card. Blight Breath, Catableep is pretty good, it's not busted. Omen of the Dead, you'll just run those in any black deck. But when you start to combine them in these ways and start rebuying these effects, then it can take what is just like a very average deck and really push it over the top. Like, these are three commons right here. And so, you know, you could just pick these up in a random draft and all of a sudden you have this repeatable kill spell which is putting this creature back on board and it's just really strong you're draining your opponent's life you're scrying so these are just examples of of how you take kind of very normal average cards and make them really punch above their weight another thing i want to talk about is being able to duplicate effects and so this isn't quite the same as like a cluster necessarily or it's not so much a synergy as it is just being able to combine multiple cards in your deck which do the same thing and which get stronger for running them together. So, one of the examples that I would give for this a lot is in Black. Black has three pretty nasty card discard spells. The first and the best one is Elspeth Nightmare. And this card's just a total wrecking. I think it's one of the premier uncommons in the set. I just continually get blown out by this card all the time. It's so good. So being able to destroy your opponent's 2-drop or 2-power creature and then snatch something out of their hand is, is really amazing. Once you pick up an elf Best Nightmare, the value of the other discard spells in the set go up because snatching one card out of your opponent's hand, you know, they can usually play around it, or even if they can't, it's not super devastating. But if you're able to get multiple... So, for example, imagine a curve that looks like this. Let's say you play a wand drop on turn 1. Let's say you play a Hateful Eidolon on turn 1. Turn 2, you play Agonizing Remorse, snag a card out of your opponent's hand. Turn 3, you play Elspeth's Nightmare, kill a creature. And then turn 4, you snag a card out of their hand with a Nightmare. And then you resolve Aspect of Lamprey. And at that point, your opponent might be empty-handed, and you've basically... Just completely resource denied them out of that game, and you know you now have a, a eidolon which is kitted up with this enchantment, and if it dies, you get to draw a card. So again, that's kind of another magical Christmas land dream draw. But again, these are just commons and uncommons, right? So. You're definitely going to see these cards a lot. And so being able to do stuff like this is just, it's very strong. It's very strong in the limited format. And frankly, I mean, a curve like that would be strong in a lot of formats. So just, you know, being able to chip away your opponent's resources like that can be really, really devastating. Let's talk about some other cards which have a similar effect that stack really well. So another thing that you can do is you can ping people on... Your opponent's turn or ping creatures on your opponent's turn and you can really stack up damage to make multiple triggers work for you so something that you might do for example is let's say you have a blood aspirant in play let's say you also have a careless celebrant in play and let's say that you Also have a Dreamstalker Manticore in play. These are all just three red cards that you might have now. They're all on commons, right? So it's not going to happen all the time. But you might have these in play. So if you do, these cards give you an incredible amount of flexibility, especially on your opponent's turn. Because let's say you do... I mean, let's say you just have Blood Aspirant and Careless Celebrant, right? What you can do is, even on your turn, you can sacrifice the Careless Celebrant, and you get a trigger off the blood aspirant and you do one damage to a creature. Then you can add on the two damage from the callous celebrant dying and now you're shooting for three damage. Likewise, if you have a Dreamstalker Manticore in play and on your opponent's turn you resolve an Omen of the Forge, Now, all of a sudden, you're able to ping a creature for three. And let's say you have all of these cards on the battlefield, right? Let's say you have your your Dreamstalker Manticore out, you have a Blood Aspirant, you have a Callous Celebrant. So you can sack the Celebrant to the Aspirant, and that does a combined total of three damage to a creature. Then you could also flash in your Omen and trigger your Dreamstalker Manticore and do another three damage, right? And so you can actually take out something of six toughness By doing that and of course you know you've spent an omen and sacrificed a celebrant to do that but you've also gotten a counter on your blood aspirin and and probably taken down your opponent's biggest thing so again i'm not saying that it's going to happen often in the game but these are the kind of things that you can start to think about and it's this is often the difference between your red deck being able to take down a big creature versus not and it can also make combat very, very difficult for your opponent. So like maybe they attack into you and you chomp block with something, but that creature now has some damage on it. And then you can deal those last points that you need by combining these cards. So this is another example of like, you know, you could maybe think of it as a cluster, but it's more just that you're doubling up on an effect and you're combining the These little incremental outputs to get more than the sum of its parts from your cards, which allows you to take down creatures you otherwise wouldn't have been able to, or it just allows you to leverage your cards for maximum value and the card quality and limited tends to be low enough that every little piece of value that you can get out of your cards can really turn the tide in a game so. Yeah, in a red deck, taking it from not being able to kill a a big high toughness creature to being able to take it down can often make the difference between winning and losing a game. So this really, again, drives up the value of picking up these cards together, thinking about if I have one of these, then the other one is going to make this more valuable. It gives you more options and it just allows you to get more out of your deck. Okay, now the final thing I want to talk about here is just a few examples of how to build around some of the rares and this isn't going to happen to you all that often but some of the rares in this format are just so good that it's really worth just thinking about and having a plan for what you might do if you pick them up. So for example the pretty much the consensus best card in the set for limited is Kiara bests the sea god right and so this is it's no secret if you've ever had an opponent resolve this against you or if you've ever been fortunate enough to resolve it against your opponent you'll know that 99% of the time the game is just over at that point so if you manage to pick one of these up then you're going to want to make some modifications to your deck to be able to leverage the fact that you have this incredibly powerful card. Now, because Kiara Best the Sea God costs seven mana, it's really a late game card. It's very infrequent in a normal game of Limited that you're going to reach seven mana by turn seven. It's probably more likely to be turn 10, turn 12, maybe even turn 15. Maybe you even don't get there at that point. So the priority of certain effects goes up a lot when you have a card like this in your deck. So the first thing is that you want to be able to find it. Your deck wants to be moving towards being able to play this card every single game. And of course it's not going to happen, but cards which allow you to filter your deck, cards which allow you to draw extra cards or loot, go up tremendously in value. When you have a card like Kiara, Best of the sea god in your deck. So once I've picked up one of these, I will try to snag every copy of Thirst for Meaning I can. Uh, definitely the Blue Omen, Omen of the Sea, goes up in value. Shoal Kraken, the ability to loot so that, you know, once you've got seven lands, you can start looting away your additional ones and searching for your spell. Or... If you have it in your hand and you don't have the lands, then you can start looting to find the lands that you need or scrying with your omen and drawing, etc. Now, another thing that I've done before when I've had Kiara Best Sea God in my deck is just, just try to build a game plan based around staying alive. So I had a draft where I had picked a fairly aggressive green deck in pack one. I think I started out my draft with Nessian Boar. And I'd gotten just some other strong green cards, a Typhon, I got a couple of Loathsome Chimeras, uh, maybe a Nassian Beetle or two. So I was just really headed in, in kind of a green aggro direction. But then in pack two, I opened a Kiara Best, the Sea God, and I ended up putting Nexus Wardens in that deck. And that is not a card that I would normally play in an aggressive green deck. It's it's really a, a slow card. It doesn't really help your aggro plan at all. And it doesn't particularly synergize with any of the synergies that, you know, it doesn't work very well with your escape cards or with your big stompy green creatures. But I was still running, I was still willing to run that card on my deck and increase the priority a little bit on some random enchantments to play just because it blocks, it protects against flyers, and it gains me life. It was basically a concession to the fact that, you know, maybe my big stompy green creatures get me there some of the time, but I just, regardless, my biggest win con in this deck is best the Sea God, and I just want to stay alive long enough to find it and cast it. Now, of course, you know, maybe in some of my matchups I sided it out if I thought that it wasn't the best plan, but that's just an example of how you might actually go against some of the innate synergy of your deck. In order to leverage just a super overly busted rare like Kiara Best's The Sea God, I'll give you another example of two mythics that I opened in a draft which I ended up using together. Uh, I opened a Nyx Bloom Ancient in one of my drafts, and I had already first picked a Pelucranos in that draft, so I was already in green. And normally I wouldn't run Nyx Bloom Ancient because You know, usually by the time you're resolving seven mana spells in limited, you don't need more mana, but I happen to be in a very heavy escape deck, and I happen to have just a lot of very expensive things to do in that deck. You know, I had multiple Voracious Typhons, I had a Pelucanos, of course, and I had some other activated abilities. I had two Destiny Spinners in that deck as well. And so when I looked at my cards, I thought, you know what, I have enough expensive activated abilities, and I have enough really expensive creatures to get back from the graveyard, that I'm going to run this Nyx Bloom Ancient, and... Pretty much every game I resolved it, it was just completely busted in that deck. And I, one time I actually had the Ancient and Pelucranos out at the same time. And it's just kind of insane how hard you can go off with Pelucranos if you have Nyx Bloom Ancient out. Because remember, you're tripling your mana. So it basically takes you the equivalent of one tapped land to do a fight with Pelucranos. And then, of course, it takes you basically the equivalent of two lands tapped to rebuy Pelucanos with the escape cost and get it back as a 1212. And then you have 12 counters to use the fight ability again. So you can quickly see how degenerate that combo becomes in Limited, especially when you've already got the seven lands in play that you needed to get your Nyx Blue Ancient out in the first place. So that's just an example of a card where I wouldn't normally run that. But because I had two Destiny Spinners, and a handful of very, very expensive escape creatures in my deck, and I had Pelucranos with a repeatable and expensive ability and escape cost, that was enough to push Nick's Bloom Ancient over the top, and it was an overperformer for me in that deck. But like I said, I wouldn't normally run that card in any random green deck because it's just a 5-5 five, five for 7, which is very unimpressive. Now let's talk about another rare Enigmatic Incarnation. So this is... It's a card which, even though it might look kind of dudly, it can actually be very, very powerful in draft. And so I wouldn't necessarily build an entire deck around it. Like if I first picked Enigmatic Incarnation, I wouldn't just force blue-green to get the most out of it. But if I was in blue-green, or if, you know, if I just happened to pick one of these up kind of mid-draft and it wasn't too hard for me to run it in my deck, I would definitely try to build around it. And the cool thing about Enigmatic Incarnation is just that there are plenty of random enchantments that you might run in your deck anyway. So for example, let's say you're in a blue-green deck, you could easily end up with two Omens of the Sea, one Omen of the Hunt, maybe you play a Binding of the Titans, there are just all of these random different enchantments that you might already be playing in your deck. And another thing to remember about the Enigmatic Incarnation is that you can actually sacrifice anything that's an enchantment. So it could be a creature as well. So if you have an enchantment creature like, let's say you have Nyxborn Sea God in your deck, then you, know, you could sacrifice that at the end of your turn and upgrade it into a Witness of Tomorrows, for example, which is just an amazing deal, being able to turn what's kind of like... A mediocre blocker in your deck into one of the best flyers in your deck is just a huge upgrade or it might let you turn some random utility common like a Naiad of hidden coves into a shimmering chimera which again is just going to be one of the best cards in your deck especially if you're running a very enchantment heavy deck which you would probably want to be in order to build around enigma- enigmatic incarnation so You know, I I definitely would take this card highly if I was in blue-green. I would definitely try to build around it. I would definitely try to just pick up a higher density of enchantment creatures. Of course, if you're able to really live the dream and maybe have like a utopia in play, then that's an amazing combo because you're basically just slamming you know you can slam enchantment creatures down you so you play an enchantment you get the value off utropia then at the end of turn you sacrifice it and maybe you grab an enchantment creature from your deck you get another trigger from utropia and another counter so that's a really busted thing you can do and again utropia is just an uncommon so you could definitely pick one of those up in the course of a blue green draft and these are just some ways that you can abuse this card next card i want to talk about is nessian boar I see a lot of these in this draft format, I think is one of the more common rares. You can get on your tinfoil hat here, maybe maybe that's a thing, maybe it's not, but I've just seen a lot of them. And this is definitely a card worth putting in your deck, it's, it's a massively powerful card, it can often just win you the game by allowing the rest of your creatures to get through It can often just kind of wrath your opponent's board. They just have to throw everything in front of it, and it's so strong. So if I were to pick up a Nessian Bar, I would definitely be wanting to pick up some other cards, such as Satessan Training to give it Trample. Is a fantastic combo. Also, a Nylea's Forerunners, just go Bar Tribal. And that can allow you to really leverage that 10 power on the Bar to get some Trample damage in. Uh, another card which is already good but gets even better when you have something like the boar is warbriar blessing so 10 power can basically kill anything and so if your opponent has a big creature you know maybe they have a voracious typhon or or maybe they just have a really high toughness blocker like a rumbling sentry in play and it's just gonna make your attack a lot worse because it's gonna soak up a lot of that damage from the boar and so you can just go ahead and fight that thing on one turn, and then on the next turn, when it doesn't have any damage on it, you can attack with a 108 and it just makes your Nessium bore even stronger. and then of course, something degenerate, like if you were in green white, for example, and you could put a commanding presence on your Nessium bar, then it just gets completely out of control. so some you know a lot of these cards are cards that you would want to run in this deck anyway, but They just really go up in value. Now, an example of a card which I've mentioned before, which, you know, isn't generally super valuable, but which gets a lot better with your Boar is a Wings of Hubris because, you know, you can just send it to the skies and that's going to be a lot harder for your opponent to deal with. And of course, if your opponent's at 10 or lower life, then you can just give it unblockable and just one-shot them right there. So Nessian Boar is definitely a card worth, I wouldn't say like hard building around. You know, you're not just going to craft your entire deck into a game plan around Nessian and Boer. But in any green deck, you can find ways to make this a very, very good card for you. And I would highly encourage trying it out. It's really strong. Okay, so that's going to wrap up this podcast. I hope that you learned something and I hope that this helped for you to just consider some of the deeper synergies that you see in this format. Every draft format has clusters that you need to be looking out for and this format is quite deep on them and there are a lot of cards which are really they just seem very very designed to fit together in this format the curves match up the effects match up the benefits match up and so this is a it just it feels this format really can make you feel like a genius sometimes and it's it's really the genius of the design of the cards But any format which gives you that opportunity to really examine a card pool and to put together these clusters, which end up being more than the sum of their parts, is just really excellent. So I'm a huge fan of this format, and I just wanted to say in conclusion that I've been drafting this format using the Marcus Tomayno method. He was a guest on one of the earlier episodes in this show. You can go back and listen to that. And that's episode five of the Arena Craft podcast. It's called The Quickest Set Completion Free to Play Method with Marcus Tomato. So, if you haven't listened to that episode, it's a really, really great overview on the arena economy. And it gives you some excellent tips for how to grow your collection quickly. And I've been basically following Marcus's advice to a T, and it's been fantastic. So, As I am recording this, I have about 150 packs in Arena, which I've earned just over the last probably two and a half weeks or so. So 150 packs, and I would say I probably have about 130 rares just from from my drafts and of course doing selects of rare drafting. I haven't been rare drafting every rare that I see, but just weighing the value of of rare drafting versus just some random playable in my deck so i've been f- semi-aggressively rare drafting as well and just i mean just even over the course of a couple of weeks of course you know i have been drafting a lot i've probably drafted about 25 hours a week but that's it's not an incredible amount of time and um and i'm i'm already a lot of the way towards being rare complete in this set So yeah, I just wanted to show you some of the show's advice in action. I've actually been following my own advice, which is Marcus Tomaino's advice, and it's really been panning out for me. And I I just wanted to show you an example of how quickly you can get rare complete in a set just by drafting diligently. I've had a 60-something percent win rate for the majority of the set. Sometimes it's been more like 60%. I've been on kind of a heater lately, so I'm at 68 at the moment. But, you know, I'm not like some super dominant person who's just always winning. And, you know, it's only taken me a little over two weeks to get to a point where I'm just about going to be rare complete when I crack my packs. So this has been really eye-opening to me because... You know, this set's going to be out for another three months, basically, before we get another standard set. And being able to have a majority of the cards in it right at the beginning of the format is really empowering, and it's really going to help me play standard, or really any other format, for the remainder of this time until the next set comes out. So I'm really excited that I've done this. I really recommend that you do it as well. It really pays off in the long run. Now, unlike Marcus Tomeno, I've not decided to go for Mythic, completion because that's just i don't know he uh, marcus said that he ended up cracking 270 packs to get there and that's just a little much for me i would rather you know i would rather just earn those mythics from the remainder of the packs that i earn while i'm playing the set if i really need to re-up on some mythics i can use some of the wild cards that i get from cracking my 150 packs or my 160 packs or whatever so i'm just gonna do it that way and then of course if i'm you know i'll probably keep drafting after i have a rare complete anyway and you know i'll continue to snag any mythics that i see that i don't already have i'm not worried about getting mythic complete i think that i'll get there and like i said whatever mythics i don't have i can always use wild cards on them if i really need them so anyway that's gonna do it for this show you can find us at Arena Craft Pod on Twitch, on social media. You can email us at ArenaCraftPod at gmail.com. We're basically this everywhere on the web. Of course, you can always find us at ArenaCraftPodcast.com. And we also have a Discord, and we'd love to see you in there. And I've been thinking about doing some fun rewards as well for people who follow on social media and stuff. So uh one of these episodes soon i'll I'll have an announcement about some little contests we do a chance for you to win some prizes and stuff just by you know giving me that support so stay tuned and in the meantime go out there and crush it in your draft i will catch you next week